the plan hadn't worked. The bomb had gone off, but not inside the courthouse like it was supposed to. The plot was simple. Mail the bomb, wait for the timed detonation. But Egyptian officials had discovered the device and detonated it safely outside. The bombers, all members of the Muslim Brotherhood, an organization that had recently been outlawed in Cairo, had hoped to destroy the courthouse and the records about their organization stored within. They couldn't have picked a worse time to get caught. It was January 1949, and negotiations were underway between the Egyptian government and the leader of the Brotherhood, Hassan Albana. Albana publicly decried the bombing as soon as he heard the news, but it was too late. The negotiations halted, and Albana found that he couldn't get in touch with any of his former contacts in the government. He knew the failed bombing had been the last straw and began to fear for his life. These fears would be well-founded. Just weeks later, he would be gunned down outside a government building. No one was ever arrested for Albana's murder, but everyone in Cairo knew who had likely ordered the killings, none other than Farouk I, king of Egypt. Welcome to Assassinations on the ParCast Network. Every Monday, we examine the famous assassins of history and the men and women who were assassinated. I'm your host, Bill Thomas. And I'm your host, Kate Leonard. This is our first episode on the assassination of Hassan al-Banna, the founder of the Muslim Brotherhood. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you are listening. It really does help us. We also now have merch. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. Hassan Albana was a devout Muslim, a teacher, and a scholar who set out to help Egypt return to its more culturally focused roots during the 1930s and 40s. But as the brotherhood he helped create splintered into factions and began using violence to achieve its goals, Albana found himself at odds with the Egyptian government. Eventually, the violence he was trying to contain consumed him as well. This week, we'll discuss the historical events that led to Albana's assassination in 1949. Next week, we'll cover the fallout and imagine how history would have been different if Albana had lived. When we talk about assassinations, we often imagine lone gunmen, disturbed individuals like Lee Harvey Oswald or Mark David Chapman. But what if the assassination is part of a broader conspiracy? Who's the real assassin? The man who pulls the trigger or the man who orders the hit? King Farouk I ascended to the throne in May 1936 when he was only 16. This teen king was remarkably ill-equipped for the challenges of ruling. As a child, he had defied his father and tutors, ignoring his studies for more pleasurable pursuits like luxury cars. When he took the throne, Farouk had little comprehension of politics, and the early years of his reign would have tested even the most experienced leaders. Egypt at this time was under British influence. 
Britain had maintained a presence in the country ever since the construction of the Suez Canal in the 1800s. But by the time Farouk took the throne, many native Egyptians were strongly opposed to the Western influence that the British represented. To complicate the issue, by 1939, World War II had broken out, and German forces were toppling nation after nation. At the same time, Benito Mussolini solidified his hold on Italy and had begun making his way toward Africa. Farouk found himself being pulled in two directions. On the one side was the British ambassador to Egypt, the man tasked with ensuring that Farouk acted in England's best interests. This was Sir Miles Lampson. The other voice in Farouk's ear was Ali Maher, a trusted advisor and staunch defender of Egypt's right to independence. As Hitler threatened England, Lampson urged Farouk to take a public stance against Germany and to appoint prime ministers who would do the same. But many Egyptian nationalists, Ali Maher included, were fed up with Britain's occupation of their country. To them, Germany represented a chance to finally escape from their British oppressors. Farouk didn't like Lampson. Despite the British power over him and his country, Farouk took pleasure in making decisions that defied the ambassador. But Farouk also didn't trust Hitler. He feared the pro-German Egyptians would be loyal to Hitler if the Axis power won World War II. Farouk spent much of the war resisting any action that would put Egypt in the line of fire. In January 1942, Egyptian Prime Minister Hussein Siri cut ties with Vichy France in a firmly pro-ally stance that upset Farouk. Farouk dismissed the Prime Minister and began making moves to give the job to Ali Maher. When Lamson caught wind of these plans, he consulted with his British superiors, and they agreed. The 21-year-old king would have to be removed. On the night of February 4, 1942, British tanks surrounded the Egyptian palace. Lampson arrived at the gates at 6 p.m. The iron gates were padlocked shut. Farouk knew what was coming and had blocked their entry, but the gate wouldn't hold for long. Lampson's officers shot the padlock off the gates and pushed their way into the palace. Once there, the men were told to wait outside the king's office. Farouk wasn't ready for them, so they waited. After five minutes, Lampson grew impatient. He charged toward Farouk's office, pushing aside a mid-level minister and forcing the doors open. Farouk was waiting inside, behind his desk, and jumped at the aggressive entrance. Lampson wasn't hearing it. He presented the king with a written statement printed on a ragged piece of paper. It read, We, King Farouk of Egypt, mindful as ever of the interests of our country, hereby renounce and abandon for ourselves and the heirs of our body the throne of the Kingdom of Egypt. It was an abdication of the throne written by the British to be signed by Farouk immediately. If Farouk refused, the tanks would advance on the palace and Farouk would be forcibly deposed, maybe even killed. Trembling and humiliated, Farouk retrieved a pen and dipped it in ink. For a long moment, Farouk's pen hovered over the slip of paper. He had no other options, it seemed, but could he really abandon the only life he'd ever known? With Lamson's hard gaze on him, Farouk gave in. 
He bent over and prepared to sign his name and lose his title and his country once and for all. At the very last moment, Prince Hassanein, one of Farouk's aides, burst into the room and rushed to the king. They began a hushed conversation in Turkish. The situation was more dire than Farouk or Lamson realized. Neither was aware that three of Farouk's bodyguards were also in the room, hiding behind curtains. They had orders to shoot Lamson if anyone laid hands on the king, which would almost certainly happen if he signed the paper. If Lamson was killed, war between Britain and Egypt seemed likely. Hassanein urged Farouk to beg for one more chance, and Farouk complied. The king promised he would install Lamson's new pick for prime minister. Farouk just wanted to keep his throne, his palace, and his royalty. Lamson accepted, and the coup was avoided. The tanks withdrew. Farouk had just barely, and with great embarrassment, saved his dynasty. The British tried to keep the incident quiet, but word spread quickly. Farouk's reputation was damaged, marking the beginning of a fatal decline in the Egyptian people's respect for him. Farouk eventually succeeded in removing the British-picked prime minister and appointed his own choice, Ahmad Mahir, in the role. But the damage to his image would not be so easily undone. Determined to be perceived as a powerful nation, Farouk begged Winston Churchill to let Egypt into the United Nations, which at the time was forming among the Allied countries. However, it was a requirement that any founding member of the UN had to have openly declared war on Germany during the Second World War. Neutral Egypt had never done so. With the war nearing its end, Farouk worried it would seem opportunistic to declare for the Allies now with Germany in retreat. Nevertheless, that's exactly what he did. He ordered his new prime minister, Ahmad Mahir, to take a declaration of war to parliament. On the morning of February 24, 1945, Farouk must have been feeling confident about his secured place in the United Nations. His declaration of war had been approved by the Chamber of Deputies, one of the houses of the Egyptian parliament. Egypt was on the track to join the UN. With this approval in hand, Prime Minister Mahir made his way toward the Senate to deliver the declaration formally and seek final legislative approval. It was a big moment for Mahir as well. As a politician, he had been sympathetic to the German cause during the war. Now he had the chance to make nice with the British by showing Egypt's devotion to a unified world order. As Mahir made his way through the halls of parliament that February morning, he bumped into a familiar face, Mahmoud Isawi, the son of a low-level government official and a lawyer in his own right. The two men greeted each other. All seemed normal. And then Isawi pulled a gun. Lamson was across the street in the British embassy when he received word of the attack. He arrived mere minutes after the shooting, but it was too late. Mahir was dead. The declaration Mahir carried was ultimately signed, and Egypt was accepted into the UN. But the message of Mahir's murder was painfully clear. Many Egyptians felt that Egypt should stand for itself. And Farouk's continued deference to the British was becoming more and more of a problem. By 1948, Farouk had lost the confidence of his people. The Muslim Brotherhood, led by one Hassan al-Banna, began to speak out against him. 
Then the attack started. The Brotherhood had long stood as political opponents to Farouk, but now they were a direct threat to his reign. It was a threat that King Farouk would not take lightly. Coming up, we'll cover the rise of the Muslim Brotherhood Egypt and Farouk's inevitable campaign of violence against them. Now, back to the story. For much of King Farouk's reign, the Muslim Brotherhood were background operators. Their rise in Egyptian politics was quick and unexpected. Founder Hassan al-Banna could not have come from a more different background than Farouk. Born in October 1906 in a small town north of Cairo, Albana was raised religiously by his father, a Sufi imam. In the mid-1920s, Albana moved to Cairo for university. He beheld the cosmopolitan modern city, perhaps the most westernized city in the Middle East, and he hated it. Albana rejected the secularism of the universities and the atheism of the high society that congregated in the nightclubs and salons. Albana expended great mental energy contemplating the hedonism of his nation's capital. He familiarized himself with the religious bookshops and magazines of Cairo and spent late nights in debate with the proprietors. When he graduated, Albana took a position teaching Arabic at a government-run primary school in the town of Ismailia on the Suez Canal. The relocation brought him in direct contact with the British troops guarding the canal and the Egyptian laborers who worked there. On an inauspicious March afternoon in 1928, six laborers came to Albana with a plea. They knew he was an educated Muslim. Albana likely dramatized the details for effect, but the roots of the story are true. He wrote that the laborers told him, quote, We have heard and we have become aware and we have become affected. We know not the practical way to reach the glory of Islam and to serve the welfare of Muslims. The laborers asked Albana to teach them how to live in service to Islam, saying, all that we desire is to present you with all that we possess, to be acquitted by God of the responsibility, and for you to be responsible before him for us and for what we must do. Albana was astounded. There, on that day, the seven men took an oath to God, vowing to be troops for the message of Islam. They would be a brotherhood of Islam, soon to be known as the Muslim Brotherhood. Albana's childhood friend, Ahmad el-Sukhari, was among the founding members, and he immediately became Albana's deputy. At the start, the Brotherhood spread its message by helping the community. They built mosques and schools, held meetings with the locals of Ismailia, and worked to grow their membership. Within four years, they had set up branches in towns along the Nile Delta. Exact membership numbers are unknown, but in 1932, the Brotherhood had 15 branches. By the end of the decade, they'd have 300. Throughout the 1930s, the Brotherhood held conferences with one another where they would clarify their mission or make endorsements for policy and politicians. But there were some in the Brotherhood who became frustrated with the lack of direct action. In 1939, Albana himself warned against diving too hastily into the next stage of their movement, of taking steps before they were ready as an organization to complete them successfully. But, he added, 
Quote, At the time they will be ready, Muslim brothers, 300 battalions, each one equipped spiritually, intellectually, and physically. At that time, you can demand of me to plunge with you through the turbulent oceans, to rend the skies with you, and to conquer every obstinate tyrant. God willing, I will do it. End quote. Around this time, Hassan al-Banna began to make important inroads with the government. He formed a cordial relationship with Ali Maher, the trusted advisor with a direct line to Farouk. Maher saw in the Brotherhood a potentially useful ally connected to the Egyptian working class. Beneficial though it was, this relationship also caused the first hints of internal strife within the Brotherhood. Certain members objected to this dynamic, concerned that the group would simply become a tool for Maher. Sukari, Albana's childhood friend, was the liaison to Maher and thus the focus of the attacks. But Albana stood by his friend and lost a significant portion of their members to a 1939 schism as a result. Though Albana didn't balk in the face of the schism, the dissatisfaction it represented clearly affected him. The Brotherhood's mission had been stalled. Now, Albana began to make moves. As the Second World War heated up, the Brotherhood openly campaigned to restrict aid to the British. They demanded that the government provide only what a 1936 treaty required of them and no more. When Albana received a government transfer out of Cairo, the membership saw this as punishment for their anti-British views. To make things worse, the government had recently banished Ali Maher for his own role in pushing against Western influence. With Maher's banishment, the Brotherhood lost its last friend in Egyptian politics. Soon after, the new prime minister formally banned the Brotherhood in an attempt to limit their growing influence. The backlash was swift, and the decision was reversed. But the attitude of the government was now unambiguous, and Albana had heard it loud and clear. He was a marked man. He began stockpiling weapons thanks to Brotherhood adherents in the Egyptian army, unbeknownst even to his closest followers. He also formed a new wing of the Brotherhood called the Secret Apparatus, it was composed of so-called rovers, independent and skilled members of the Brotherhood who would be used for missions important to the organization. But the secret apparatus would remain dormant for now. Among Albana's military confidants was Anwar el-Sadat, the military officer who shared Albana's views about the necessity of revolution. However, as the government made its opposition to the Brotherhood apparent, Albana attempted several times to organize meetings with the king. Sadat had a friend in the palace and helped arrange these meetings. Albana met with Sadat's friend, Yusuf Rashad, who was impressed and recommended Farouk arrange a meeting. Farouk laughed Rashad out of the room, refusing to consider it. The brothers were officially persona non grata. As World War II came to a close, the Muslim Brotherhood organized protests, enlisting activist students from the universities to make their nationalist demands to the crown. During a 1946 protest, they marched across the Abbas Bridge in Cairo. And then, under orders from Prime Minister Mahmoud el-Nakrashi, police opened the drawbridge 
dropping the students into the water. Dozens drowned, and even more were injured. Nakrashi's action put a quick stop to protests that risked embarrassing the government. But it also put a quick stop to his own prime ministership. The government immediately went into damage control mode as the palace dissolved Nokrashi's cabinet and dismissed him from his post. But the clashes between police and protesters intensified. Specifically, Sakari, a founding member of the Brotherhood and Albana's childhood friend, came under scrutiny. Sukari had been proposing a close partnership with the Waft Party, the same party who had ordered the bridge opened under the students' feet. It was, in short, an extremely unpopular idea. And Sukari paid the price for its unpopularity. Under immense pressure, Albana caved. Sukari left the Brotherhood in disgrace, and Albana turned away from his former friend. Not long after... Perhaps feeling even more pressure from his membership to take action, Albana put his secret apparatus into motion. From here, Albana's relationship to the secret apparatus gets hazy. Toward the end of his life, he would deny giving its members orders. He was separated from them by a deputy who ostensibly was in charge. But he did create the group. And starting in 1946, they controlled the major actions carried out by the Muslim Brotherhood. This activity began in earnest in 1947, as war seemed certain between the Arab League nations and the Jewish population that sought the formation of Israel. The Brotherhood's secret apparatus began funneling military-trained members into Palestine. The Brotherhood did not share Farouk's qualms about aiding the Arab side in this war. As staunch Muslims and members of the working class, they had always identified with the Arab world in a way that Egypt's elite simply did not. Over the next year, the Brotherhood soldiers provided assistance to the military. At one point, they came to the aid of an Egyptian unit trapped by Israeli forces running supplies across enemy lines. Meanwhile, Prime Minister Nokrashi was back in power, at the king's request, after his predecessor resigned in disgrace. Nokrashi refused to divert government resources to these same trapped troops. The troops were finally released at the end of the war, but that did little to appease them. Betrayed by their leaders and unthanked for their war effort, the Brotherhood lashed out at a government that had apparently surrendered itself to its British occupiers. These, again, were years of bloodshed in Egypt. The movie theater bombings of 1946 and 47. The multiple bombings of Cairo's Jewish quarter in the summer and fall of 48. Assassination attempts and successes like the March 1948 killing of a judge who had sentenced a brother to prison. Egypt had lost its war with Israel, but another battle was brewing, a battle fought in the streets. In punctuated bouts of horrendous violence, in terrorist attacks and state-sanctioned response killings. In response, in December 1948, Brotherhood soldiers in Palestine were rounded up and informed that the Brotherhood was once again being dissolved and banned by the Egyptian government. Coming up, we'll discuss the fallout of this order and the final months of Hassan al-Banna's life. Now, back to the story. The December 1948 ruling to ban and dissolve the Muslim Brotherhood devastated the group. 
A band of Muslim Brotherhood members were arrested at their headquarters. The police took everyone away in handcuffs, except mysteriously for Albana himself. Albana had no cause for celebration. He took his continued freedom as an ill omen, telling friends and confidants that in not arresting him, the government was tacitly admitting they had a different fate in mind. In the following weeks, the Brotherhood and government continued to act against one another. The Cairo police chief was killed in a riot. Several brothers were charged and sentenced for attacks from previous years. Albana himself denounced the attacks and begged the government to de-escalate tensions. But they continued to pursue Brotherhood members aggressively. The conflict only got worse. On December 28, 1948, Prime Minister Nokrashi Pesha was walking to enter the Ministry of the Interior Building. He thought he was safe. The only people he could see were military officers. One of the lieutenants approached Pesha. He wasn't alarmed. It was probably just some minor matter about guard schedules. Pesha turned to face the approaching man, but... It was no lieutenant. It was Abdel Ahmed Hassan, a Brotherhood member who had stolen the uniform and used it as a disguise. He shot Pesha twice, killing him, and then fled the scene. To the public, this was unforgivable. And though Albana publicly decried the actions of the Brotherhood, he was blamed for the attack. His fellow brothers began to turn on him as well for speaking out. At the funeral for Nokrashi, there were some brothers who yelled, death to Albana. Albana's response did little to smooth things over with his fellow brothers. Nokrashi's assassination pushed Albana even harder to reconcile with the government. He began to meet regularly with the newly formed cabinet under the direction of the new prime minister, Ibrahim Abdelhadi, who was vehement about wiping out the brotherhood. To appease them during these negotiations, Albana continued to write letters in the press, urging the younger members of his organization to stand down, while in private trying to work with the government to stop the bombings. But in January 1949, brothers attempted to bomb a courthouse that they believed held incriminating records about them and their organization. And though Albana immediately denounced this bombing as well, the government went radio silent. Prime Minister Abd al-Hadi had determined to permanently end the actions of the secret apparatus of the Muslim Brotherhood. And he had King Farouk's support to do what was necessary. In private, Hassan al-Banna told friends that he feared for his life, believing the new government had already decided his fate. With that in mind, he wrote a pamphlet in which he again denounced the killings, but absolved the Brotherhood of responsibility. After all, the bombers had all been arrested. He said, there is no society to be questioned, no leaders to plan, for they were either in prison or under surveillance. He ended by listing the many perceived persecutions suffered by the Muslim Brotherhood, contrasted with the good work they had done for their country. Even now, he seemed to see the Brotherhood as a force for good, one whose overzealous followers shouldn't be allowed to ruin the genuine help they had given communities nationwide. This pamphlet, written in a state of deep dread and sorrow, would be the last piece Albana ever wrote for the public. On February 12, 1949, 
Hassan Albana arrived at the headquarters of the Young Men's Muslim Association in Cairo. Albana was scheduled to meet with Minister Zaki Ali Pasha, a representative of King Farouk's government, to continue discussions on how to resolve the chaos and violence. It was mid-afternoon as Albana walked up to the building, flanked by his brother-in-law, Abdul Mansour, and a lawyer. Inside, Albana and his partners took their seats at the table, and then they waited and waited. Looking among one another, talking quietly, the men were baffled. It was a peaceful Saturday afternoon. There had been no crisis as far as they were aware. Where was Farouk's spokesman? For hours, they sat expectantly, awaiting the arrival of their negotiating partners that they might finally start towards some kind of peace in Egypt. Finally, 5 o'clock p.m. passed, and nobody had appeared. They were confused, but these were confusing times, and what else could they do but leave? If this was some kind of setup, sticking around surely wasn't going to make them safer. As they stepped out into the busy Cairo street, Albana hailed a taxi. As Albana and his partner stepped into the car, a black vehicle pulled up behind them. A group of men, described in the paper as youths, stepped out with guns raised. As the dust cleared, the assailants got back in their car and disappeared into traffic. Albana's lawyer was on the ground, wounded. He'd been hit twice. Hassan Albana lay on the ground, bleeding out. Within minutes, he was dead. If the government thought that ending Albana's life would quell the unrest in Egypt, if they believed that without Albana, the violence in their country would come to an end, what happened next would prove them disastrously wrong. Thanks for listening to Assassinations. We'll be back Monday with part two of our series on Hassan Albana. You can find more episodes of Assassinations as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Assassinations was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Assassinations is written by Thomas Dolan Gavitt and stars Kate Leonard and Bill Thomas. <laughs> <laughs>